Let's just welcome all the campuses with us right now. It's a good time. Be together to worship. Hey, listen, before we dive into Nehemiah and get into the Word today, I want to remind all the ladies who are close enough, and I know some of our campuses are maybe too far, but some of you might can make it as well, but we have the incredible uh, women's conference that's happening later on today, and someone that I'm really excited to have here at Three Circle with us, Alicia Williamson, is here with us. Alicia is an unbelievable singer, albums, award-winning, but also an incredible communicator. She is just an, just awesome. So if you did not sign up for that, you're a lady in the room, I want to encourage you to cancel all of your evening plans. I mean, even like if it was something huge, like some huge anniversary getaway, I'd just cancel all that and be here for this. And we had closed down the uh, the actual sign-ups and all that, but you, we, we're opening it back up. Uh, so I, I wanted to just give you one last push to go, you will be blessed if you come. Now, Alicia had a massive influence on me when I was a college student, as a freshman in college. Uh, she not only taught us about music, but also the love of the Word of God. So I just honor her today. She's going to be here tonight. You don't want to miss that. Now, uh, Nehemiah, let's dive into the Word of God. Why in the world would we study this ancient book? Why would we do that? Why would we study an old book about an ancient guy? Well, here's why. Because in studying the word of God in the Old Testament, we see who God is. The number one thing about Nehemiah is not the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. It's about seeing who God is. Now watch this. God does not change. The whole world has changed since Nehemiah's day. We now have iPhones and Facebook and all that stuff, and they didn't, which is why they actually built the wall probably, because they did not have iPhones and Facebook, and they could actually get something done, right? But everything else has changed. We, it's hard to relate, but one thing that hasn't changed is God. And when we look at how God dealt with his people in Nehemiah, well, that is how he deals with us. That is how God is because he doesn't change. So the point of Nehemiah, number one point, is God himself and his sovereignty and his faithfulness. And then we learn so many secondary things that will help us in our lives. So Nehemiah is this ancient guy who grew up in Persia. He grew up under a Persian rule as a Jewish guy. How? Well, because he was born in exile. God disciplined his people by allowing the Babylonians to defeat them and destroy the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and the walls. And then they took all of the people, except for about 5% of the population who hid and got away, they took them all into exile. And Nehemiah was born into that, and then the Persians defeated the Babylonians, so they took over, and uh, Nehemiah, our guy, worked his way up through the government system of Persia to end up being the cupbearer to the king. In other words, he had a good government job with a good pension and good retirement and all that good stuff. But God laid on his heart to be the man that would go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. Artaxerxes was the name of the king, and he risked his life to ask the king permission to go back and rebuild the wall. This could have been a death sentence. But instead, God provided a way, and the king surprisingly said, yes, you can go build the wall, and here I'm going to give you my Home Depot card so you can buy whatever you need for it. And he did, and we learned in that chapter, remember church, when you live life by your plans, you have to provide. But when you live life by God's plans, he provides. And aren't you thankful for a God that provides when we do what he is asking us to do? So... Last week, chapter 3, we looked at the fact that Nehemiah organized the people and all the people brought different gifts to the table. And you remember, it's a theocracy, so the most powerful people in Jerusalem were the priests and they were the first ones to put the Carhartt overalls on and go to work. 
which must have been really good for the rest of the people to see those guys are working, I will too. And so this variety of gifts and people he brings to the table and he put them all in front of their own house to work on the wall. And what we learned last week is that was an Old Testament picture of what the New Testament church is supposed to look like. That's us. We look like these guys. They had a wall to build. We have a world to reach locally, regionally, and globally. Amen, church? And so we see so much that we learn from this. Today, it's time to stop talking about building the wall. It's time to start building. So today in chapter 4, they're actually going to put the spades and the shovels on the ground, and they're going to go to work, and we're going to see what's going to happen. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3. Now, when Sanballat, remember Sanballat was the guy making fun of him? Now, he's not done. So they're going to start building the wall, but Sanballat heard that we were building the wall. He was angry. He was greatly enraged. He jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yeah, what, what, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. That was a huge insult. So what happens is they start building and guess what? Everyone's not happy about it because all of those people, Tobiah and Sanballat and the whole region, they remembered the stories of 150 years before when Israel was the superpower in the area. They had heard the stories of King David and King Solomon, Rehoboam and all those guys, and they knew that this broken down, burned down city used to be the baddest city in the land. And they didn't want to see that happen again. So they act like they're not threatened and they make fun of them. But inside, Nehemiah knew, oh, they're, they don't like this. They don't want us rebuilding the walls. Remember, why were walls important in the ancient world? They were physical defense, but they were also psychological. If you didn't have walls, you were a joke. And the people, don't ever miss this. For 100 plus years, the people of Israel, generation after generation, because they grew up in dysfunction, they got used to it. It became who they were. They grew up with it. It's kind of like being a Saints fan in the 80s. I just got used to it. I was a Saints fan. We never won. To the point that when Drew Brees and Sean Payton showed up in town, we started winning. We didn't even know. I was like, wait a minute. We win games? What? Don't be afraid. Sean Payton and Drew Brees left town, and we're back to being the Saints of the 80s. It's great. Right? But watch this. If you live around dysfunction enough, it can happen in your home. It could happen in this church before we know it. You might get used to dysfunction. They just got, this was who they were. Like, yeah, we don't have a wall. We're a joke. Yeah, we're not much to look at. We're just a beat up old city with a past glory. Nehemiah comes to town and says, hey, 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 that's not who God created us to be. And they went, you know what? You're right. Sometimes it takes someone in your home, in your organization, at your job, in your church to stand up and go, hey, why don't we be who God's created us to be? Why don't we stop listening to all of the stories that are coming around us and listen to God's story for our life? And sometimes it takes someone standing up and saying, we're not going to live in dysfunction anymore. We're going to build the walls. And they did. And Nehemiah was that guy. But when they begin, they immediately get opposition. Write it down. This teaches us something. The Christian life, my friends, is a contact sport. Don't sign up for football if you don't want to get tackled. And the prosperity gospel, for many reasons, is one of the worst things America's ever invented. We invented a lot of good things. Lots of good things like cheeseburgers and ketchup. Sausage biscuits. Elvis. 
you know, all that stuff. Pretty good, right? It's because I'm from Mississippi. I was born the day he died. That's a true story. We can talk about it later. But here's the deal. We invented a lot of stuff, but one thing we invented that's not good is the prosperity gospel. Because that is a gospel that's not biblical. And it says, if you'll follow Jesus, everything will be great. If you'll just give your life to Jesus, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. Everything's going to be good. Everybody's going to be happy. It's just going to be so great. And the problem is that is not the story for the believers we see in the Bible. In fact, when you come to Jesus, you enter into a battlefield and you have a target on your back. So that's not the story. The gospel is that we have peace not in our circumstances, but in Christ himself. Christian life's a contact sport. Jesus said it to his disciples in John 16, He said, I have said these things to you. Watch this. Not that you will have peace in your circumstances because they're never going to have that in their lives. Think about who he's talking to. He's talking to 12 men and 11 of them will be executed in one way or another for their faith. Speared to death, skinned alive. One's going to be crucified upside down. Another's going to be thrown off a cliff. Another's going to be cut with the sword. Another's going to be poisoned over and over again until finally they put him on an island. And he writes the last book of the Bible while he's out there. But it still wasn't a walk in the roses. So Jesus looks at them and says, guys, if you find your peace in your circumstances, you're never going to have it. Look what he says. I say these things to you that you may have peace in me. In me, you will find peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. You see what he's saying? He's saying, the world, you're not going to find peace. You follow me, this world's not even going to be your home anymore. You will not find peace in this world, but you will in me. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Church, that's really good news for us today. Because Jesus is saying he can give us a peace that can transcend our circumstances. That means tomorrow morning if you're an oncologist and you find out something that you didn't want to hear about your health, you as a Christian can still have peace even though you're now facing bad circumstances. Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have that kind of trouble. But in me, you can have peace. Our peace is transcendent. It's not based on our circumstances. I'm glad four people are excited about that. In me, Jesus says, but too many of us are chasing peace somewhere else. And Nehemiah and his crew in Jerusalem, they had to learn it quick. They had to learn that if they were waiting for the world around them to cheer them on as they followed God, that wasn't going to happen, man. That they were going to face opposition. Jesus expounded on this in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter All kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, when life gets hard for you as a Christian, he says, don't worry. Every other Christian that's ever lived, including the prophets, they dealt with the same thing. Years back, uh, I got my first taste of being attacked online. Okay, some stuff got out on Twitter and stuff like that. It was something, some sermon, and people were taking shots. And I was like, ooh, I wasn't used to that. And a buddy of mine who has a ministry in another part of the country that God's done a lot of good things to, he hit me, and he goes, welcome to the club. (laughs) And I hit him back, and I said, I didn't ask to be in your club, pal. He said, hey, you want to do big things for God? And this this is what my friend would say. He'd always say, whole nother level, whole nother devil. How about that? Yeah, because if you follow God and do what God wants you to do, you will face attack. And there's kind of an idea in the sports world, and I'm sorry here in the state of Alabama to bring up sports right now. 
Because I do know my audience at all of our campuses and our Louisiana brethren who have made the migration here to Alabama. You're very happy today. But whether you fall on one side of the aisle or the other in Alabama and Auburn, you're, nobody's happy today, really. But, I, but I'd already planned it, so I'm going to use a football analogy. There's this thing called yak. You ever heard of yak? Yak. Y-A-C. And it is yards after contact. Now, this is huge in the athletic world, and this is what yards after contact looks like. It looks like this. Guy has the ball. He gets hit. What does he do after he gets hit? He gets hit. What, is, what yards does he get after contact? And this is huge. This is how they're doing contracts now. They want to know for a running back and a wide receiver. You get hit, then you get more yards. Initial contact, boom. And then what are you going to do with it now? And the really great athletes can take a hit and then get more yards. They don't fold up. They don't run out of bounds. Uh, they keep go. You know, these guys remind me a lot of me back when I was in high school. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Biggest laugh I've gotten all day at every campus. You people cut deep, man. You cut deep. So yards after contact. And see, here's what Nehemiah had to teach his team. You're going to get hit in the mouth. What do you do then? When you say, hey, Sunday morning Christianity, let's be honest, is one thing. Monday morning Christianity is where it's at. Like right now, it's easy to say, praise God. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. What about tomorrow morning? What do you do tomorrow morning when you're back at the job you don't want to have, when you have to deal with a spouse that the two of you are having trouble, the teenager that smarts off to you before they go to school, the college student who you hope would find a church, been there three years, hadn't found a church, and you're scared they're drifting, the, the doctor's appointment you don't want to have, the chemo treatment that you know is going to take everything you've got out of you, the, the, the arthritis that just won't go away, and the drugs aren't helping, and, and you're hurting again, and, and all of us just bring all of this stuff to the table, the Christian life includes includes those things. So what do you do when you get hit? What do you do? Do you push through? And what I love about Nehemiah and his leadership and this bunch of Jewish people is that they pushed through. They had yards after contact. I think many of us just fold up. We just go, oh man, it's just too hard and we drift. But what about those who push through the suffering? Okay, well, let me help you with that because you may be going, well, why would I? Like, is suffering just random? Do we just suffer for suffering's sake? And I got really good news for you. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there's purpose. How many of you are like me? Just tell me why we're doing this, like you're a why person. If you can help me understand why I'm in. Okay, look at Romans 5, 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul says this. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. You know, Christians are weird, man. We're weird. We believe they crucified a guy. He was dead as a doornail. And then three days later, we believe he rose again. And then we believe he's coming back again. We believe all this stuff. And then if you don't think that's weird, we are people who rejoice when we suffer. What's wrong with us? Right? Well, we've got the peace of Jesus. It changes everything. So we rejoice in our sufferings. Now watch, Paul tells you the why. He says, because we know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now watch this. Flip that scripture backwards. What the Bible is telling you is when you are a true believer, the Holy Spirit is in you, the love of God is in you, you look at suffering differently. That's what it's saying. Because if, if you just go from a human perspective, no human can rejoice in suffering. That's not our natural 
proclivity. No human can push through and get yards after contact. We are not that good. No, no, we can't do that on our own. That's why Paul attaches it to our salvation. One of the marks of real Christianity is people who look at suffering different. People who see it different. I have a really good friend who is a doctor who specializes in cancer and cancer treatment. And he tells me that he can always tell the patients who have faith in Jesus. Because they just see it differently. They see the whole situation through a different set of eyes. And do you know what? We have a light to shine to the world. And I think one of the greatest ways we can show the world that Jesus is great is when we suffer well. Because then the world goes, wow, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen people suffer well. We shine our light the brightest when we suffer well. We show that Jesus is our peace and he is our treasure. So there's a purpose to our suffering. So what does Nehemiah do when they get hit? And we've seen him do this all along. Does he go outside the gates of Jerusalem and argue with Tobiah and Sanballat? Does he jump on Facebook and light them up? Hmm? No, no. He does what he always does when he gets punched in the mouth, when it gets tough. He prays. Remember, Nehemiah was a mature. I've told you this. I'm making a big claim. I think he's one of the most mature believers in the entire Old Testament. He prays like a theologian. He believes like a theologian. And he acts like one. He is solid as a rock. And he has a reflex. His reflex is to pray. So he does. He says, here, O God. We are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah could have gotten distracted. He could have run off that wall and went and argued with them. Instead, he prays. See, hardship should drive believers to God in prayer. And that's one of the best things about hardships. It drives us to the Lord in prayer. What is your reflex as a person, when things get hard, what's your first thing to do? Worry? Anxious? Try to fix it? Or is your reflex prayer? Is your default setting on the computer of your life to pray? I wish that I could say mine always was. Can I be honest with you this morning? Sometimes mine is to try to fix it on my own. Nehemiah always went to God in prayer. And then what I love about him is he prayed... And then he went right back to the mission. Look what it says, Nehemiah 4, 6. So we built the wall. He could have gotten distracted. He could have come off the wall, but he says, I prayed, and then we built the wall. Folks, I don't know about you, but God's put some things in my hand, and some of them are just automatic. Like Nehemiah knew his mission was to build the wall. What's yours? What do you need to be focused on right now? Look, I'm the pastor of this church, the husband of my wife, and the dad to my three kids. I've got a bunch of stuff that, like, I know. I don't even have to pray about it. I know this is what my life is supposed to be centered on, and I can easily get distracted with a 100 other things. And many of you are distracted. We're all distracted people, yet God has called us, like Nehemiah, to build the wall, whatever that wall looks like in your life. What is it that you need to be focused on? We live in a time of unbelievable distraction. Yet Nehemiah said, hey, we built the wall. We got it halfway up because the people had a mind to work. As I told you earlier, probably the reason they got it done is they did not have iPhones to distract them because we're so distracted. We now can't watch a ball game without watching two others on our phone. 
When you're working on your computer, it's dinging at you notifications. There's now companies making devices that cannot hook to the internet to help us focus and actually get something done. Yet God calls us to focus. See, the Jewish people just let God deal with the opposition while they stay focused on the mission. They couldn't go run everything down. They couldn't spend hours on Facebook. What's everybody saying about us? No, they just needed to get the job done. The wall needed to be built. And Nehemiah was able to stay focused. Now, how do we apply these lessons to our lives, folks? Distraction's killing us. Distraction's killing us. How much really good time are you spending with your kids if you're a parent? Or are you distracted? Are you distracted and they are distracted? I mean, how many times do we look at people sitting at a table at a restaurant, three kids and two parents, and everybody's looking at their phone? Now, let me flip it. And how many times is that you with your kids? Me and my wife many times have looked at each other and said, what are we doing? Like we're all on our phones. We're so distracted. And there's a million different things to do and a million different channels. I mean, your TV now has like 500 channels. What are we doing? I don't even know what to watch anymore. People ask me all the time, have you seen this? Have you seen that? I'm like, I don't even know where to start. I'm starting to sound like an old guy. I remember the old days. There are just a few channels. Couple of hit TV shows, Seinfeld and Friends. It was an easy choice. That's the old days, my friends. Everything's changed, right? But what if we focus? What could God do in us if we focus? My friend, Carrie Newhoff, who's come here before, big-time author and has a big podcast. Y'all remember he came and spent this day with us here at Three Circle, and one of his big things is focus. He told us as a staff, focus is the new superpower in this world that we're in of distraction. People who can figure out how to get focused, that's a superpower today. And I think spiritually that's so true. Nehemiah focused those people and they were tempted to be distracted just like us. Paul teaches us the same idea in Philippians 3.14. He said, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now watch what he attaches it to, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words, grown-up Christians... Learn how to focus. One of the marks of mature believers are people who know how to not be distracted. How to stay focused on what God has put in front of you or put in your hands. Let me give you a few focus requirements. I really believe that we see this in Nehemiah. Here are requirements for us to focus, and they are this. Number one, full commitment to what God's put in your hands. And that would be what we call here your yes card. And then we need aggressive removal of distraction. And that's what we would call your no card because you don't just need a yes. Every yes requires a no. You just need to understand that. And then consistent appropriate action. And again, I can just take the few things. There's many things God has for us to do, but I can take the automatics in my life. And for me, I just look at my life and go, okay, right out of the gate, the things God put in my hands. Husband to Nan, my wife. Dad to Gabe, Coop, and Gracie, my children. Pastor here at this local expression of the church, Three Circle. I, I've got some things to focus on. And if I'm going to say yes, now watch this. Every yes requires a no. Because watch. The strongest yes in the world that does not have a corresponding no becomes maybe. Let me say that again. 
the strongest yes you say in your life, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. If you don't have a corresponding no, what you're going to remove, distraction, you've turned that yes into a maybe at best. So you got to have a yes card and a no card. And my question today is, learning from Nehemiah, learning from the word of God, what has God put in your hands that you need to focus on? And tell me this, this is also equally important. What is the biggest threat of distraction to what you need to focus on? What's the biggest threat for distraction? Who is your sand ballot? Or what is your sand ballot in Tobiah? What is it that may pull your eyes off of the bullseye that God's put in your life? You do know it's moving fast, right? You may wake up with a senior in high school and realize that you have drifted and totally disconnected, that you've missed a whole lot of time because you got distracted. This is crucial lessons that we learn from the word of God today. Yes cards require no cards. So they decide to build the wall even though people are threatening them. And one of the threats was... Remember when we read it earlier, just a moment ago, Tobiah and Samballat were connected to the Sumerian armies. There was this other army out there. And they come and make a threat. They say, hey, we're going to attack you. These guys are going to attack you. Now, we know from history it's a bluff. They're not going to attack them. They were bluffing, trying to get Nehemiah and the Jewish people distracted. But they didn't know that. Nehemiah didn't know that. So what I want you to see here, watch, is Nehemiah did not ignore reality. He knew there were real threats. He knew that it was hard. He didn't ignore it, but he also understood how to handle the hardship. Let's look at what happened. Nehemiah, so they're threatened. People have said, we're going to attack you. How does he handle it? At that time when we were threatened, verse 12, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So they're scared. So Nehemiah, verse 13, he says, so the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, spears, bows. And I looked and arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Watch this. Here's number one. Do not be afraid of them. Don't you love that? He looks at them and he says, yes, there's threats. Yes, there's distraction. And number one on the list is you do not be afraid of them. Folks, I'm so tired of watching Christians be afraid of the world and be afraid of culture and be afraid of politics. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Stop living afraid and live confident in your God. But now, I'm not telling you to ignore Nehemiah's not saying ignore. He's like, get you a sword and get you a weapon and and we're going to keep building this wall. So he says, number one, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. And look what Nehemiah says. His enemies heard about this speech, this brave heart speech that he just gave. (laughs) Freedom. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Now watch how they work now. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, coats of mail. The leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Can y'all get that picture? Verse 18, and each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built, and the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. I love that. You get the picture? Now, let me tell you the principle Nehemiah gives us today. You ready? Christians, believers in God, 
We don't just stick our head in the sand. No, we're involved. We shine our light bright in the darkness, but we don't let it consume us. We can be concerned and not be consumed. And that is so important for us today. As believers, we are to be concerned about our obstacles. Nehemiah did not ignore them. He didn't act like it wasn't hard. No, no, he understood it was hard. But he would not let he, he or the people be consumed by the obstacles. Folks, life is hard. I don't know what you're going to face today when you leave this church. Life is hard. But your peace must be grounded in Jesus. Not in your abilities. Not in life. It's going to be great. No, no. In Christ. Christians have a transcendent peace found in Christ. Now, in with an illustration that's helped me for so many years. Um, I love trees. We live in an area with great trees. And in our region where we are in particular, there are three trees, but only two of them work for my example, so we're going to ignore the other one. All right? That's how preachers work. So in our area, we have these two trees. We have pecan trees and we have oak trees. Let me tell you about pecans. I love them. Here's a pecan tree. They're gorgeous, right? But we have these things called hurricanes around here. And when a hurricane comes, the number one tree you see laying on the ground are pecan trees. They hit the ground. I've heard stories of Jim Cantore's voice being heard in a living room and the pecan tree just goes ahead and falls down. The wind hasn't even started yet. Why do pecan trees hit the ground in such great numbers? Because they have very shallow root systems. They're great trees, but the roots are very shallow for such a big tree. The wind comes, they just can't handle it. They can't get the yards after contact. They hit the ground. But now these guys, these guys are different. Hurricanes come, and this thing, you can almost hear it laughing, like, bring it on. Because that oak tree is like 500 years old. It's been through lots of hurricanes, the bad ones, and they're still there. Why? Root system. The roots in that thing are unbelievable. They go deep. They go wide. And look, I'm not against pecan trees, but I want an oak tree church. I want to raise oaks as kids. I want to be an oak tree dad. I want to be an oak tree follower of Christ that when the winds inevitably come, I am not rooted in myself or my circumstances. I'm rooted in Christ. So therefore, I and you and we can stand because we're rooted in Jesus, right? That's our hope. So today, church, three circles. What is it that you need to be focused on and what distractions do you need to remove in order for you and your life to be more oak tree than pecan? What is it in your life that today you know God's put in your hands that needs, that demands your focus? What is it? And what will you say yes and no to? And how will you allow the peace of Jesus in the gospel to be the thing that you hold to tighter than anything else? Not your circumstances, not tomorrow being better, but instead Jesus being faithful. That's what we hold to today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your word, your word. And I pray that you'd bring it alive in our hearts. I pray that you'd let us focus on you. I pray today that there'd be some in this building who would pull out a serve card and fill it out and say, hey, I want to be a part of what's going on at Three Circle Church. I want to be focused here. I want to be a part of this. I pray there'd be people that would say, I don't want to just worship and just be in a group. I want, to, I want to be a part. I want to serve. I want to grab a spade and a shovel. I want to put it in the ground. I want to be a part of building this wall. I pray that there'd be people who would be more focused than ever this week on what you've put in their hands, in their homes, in their families, in their marriages, in their jobs, in their schools. 
that you would help us live out the calling to be your ambassadors in this world the way Nehemiah and these people did. Help us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.